Good morning, Sovereign Grace Church Pasadena. My name's Tim Owens. I am one of the pastors here at Sovereign Grace. And if you are just joining us for the first time in about five months, we have been in a series, a preaching series, through the book of Acts. Acts is the fifth book in the New Testament, and it holds a significant place in Scripture because it tells the story of the birth and foundation of the Christian church and its subsequent spread throughout the Roman Empire and then to the ends of the earth, reaching even to us here in Pasadena, California, in the year 2024. In chapters 1 through 7, we see the explosive growth of the church in the city of Jerusalem, starting with just 120 people just before Pentecost in Acts chapter 1, and growing to an estimated 15 to 20,000 people by the time we get to chapter 7, when one of the deacons of the church, a key leader named Stephen, is martyred and persecution forces the church members out of Jerusalem and into the surrounding cities. In chapter 8, we see that this persecution, instead of killing the church, it actually caused it to grow. And a man named Philip, this is not Philip the apostle, but another deacon from the church in Jerusalem, Philip is the main character in chapter 8. And at the beginning of the chapter, we find him preaching Christ in Samaria, and great crowds are responding in faith and being baptized. And that brings us up to our text for today, which is Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 40. So if you can please turn there in your Bibles, let's read this together. And then we will pray and begin. Acts chapter 8, and starting in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning. Seated in his chariot, he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself 
or about someone else. Then Philip opened his mouth. And beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your powerful, inspired, inerrant word and the way that it shapes our lives. We pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to apply your word to our lives this morning, and we pray in particular that you would make us more like Philip, that you would make us eager, confident, joyful witnesses for Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In the year 490 BC, the Persian Empire was the big kid on the block in the Middle East, and they wanted to conquer Greece. And their plan was to land their troops from ships near the town of Marathon, a town that's on the southeastern coast of Greece, about 25 or 26 miles away from the city of Athens. Now, the Athenians won the battle, as you may know, and as the story goes, a man named Pheidippides was given the great honor to announce the victory back in the city of Athens, and he was so filled with joy and eagerness to announce this news that he ran the 26 miles, and the legend is that he arrived in the city of Athens and announced the victory to the city and then he immediately dropped dead. Now, some poets speculate that he died of joy, but you may be thinking he might have died of exhaustion. But in any case, our modern race, the marathon, is named after this legendary event. Now, there is some disagreement you might be interested to hear some disagreement about whether this marathon story is true. Now, the battle actually happened, but did Pheidippides run back and dramatically die as he delivered the message? We don't know, because the first two writers to mention this story showed up on the scene of history about five or six hundred years after the Battle of Marathon, quite some distance. But what we do know is from the historian Herodotus, who was alive during the Greco-Persian War. And he does describe a man named Pheidippides who was, and I quote, a professional long-distance runner. This is the part of the story where I start to get excited. There was a moment in history where long-distance running was not just a hobby, my friends. Pheidippides was a professional long-distance runner. And the true story is that the Athenian generals ask him to run, not to marathon, but from Athens to Sparta 
to recruit help in the battle against the Persians. But Sparta is not 26 miles from Athens. It's 155 miles away from Athens. And the story goes that he arrived at midday the day after he left. He delivered the news, he asked Sparta for help, and then he ran back. That's what Herodotus tells us. Now, just in case you're wondering if something like this is even possible, you're in good company because in 1982, five members of the British Royal Air Force who were inspired by this story, they went to Greece to test whether it was possible to run from Athens to Sparta, 155 miles in 36 hours. And three of them succeeded. And every year since 1982, the Hellenic Amateur Athletics Association has hosted this race. It's now called the Spartathlon, and you too can sign up <laughs> because in 2024, the Spartathlon is being held in September. Uh, the current course record, which was set last year, is 19 hours and 55 minutes, 155 miles. Now, Here's my question for you. How important would a message need to be to convince you to set out on a 155-mile run? In 490 BC in Greece, strategic military communications were being carried by professional distance runners. For all Pheidippides knows, if he doesn't complete this race, it's possible that his country will fall to the Persians, that his whole way of life and culture will be changed. Our text for today highlights the remarkable significance that God has given to his people, a, a very particular kind of significance. God has given his people the honor of carrying the message of the greatest victory in the history of the world. We are primarily, in the New Testament, messengers of Christ. We are ambassadors. We are witnesses. That's the terminology of the book of Acts. We've been entrusted with a message of massive significance and power. A message that many in the New Testament and in church history did actually die to deliver. A message that is absolutely worth every ounce of effort and energy that you and I have. And what's more, this message is not only relevant within one culture. This message is for everyone regardless of race, ethnicity, background, regardless of personal history, moral track record, bad decisions, personal failures. This message is not culturally conditioned or limited. It's not a message made up by men. It's God's message to mankind. We might summarize the main point of our text very simply this way. The Holy Spirit is taking the gospel to all nations through God's people. God the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is saving people from eternal condemnation for their sins 
through you and I when we tell them what Jesus did for them. Let me restate that. The power of God to save people comes through faith in a message. And you are the messengers. You are Pheidippides. You have been entrusted with a message of Jesus' victory over sin and death, and Jesus has sent the Holy Spirit to guide and empower you to run to every neighbor and to every nation. Our text gives us three main points for today. Point number one, led by the Spirit, verses 26, 29, and 39. Point number two, the Ethiopian eunuch, verses 27 and 28. And point number three, an eager messenger, verses 29 to 35. Let's jump right into point number one, led by the Spirit. I want to draw your attention to two simple observations that I think should begin to shape our understanding of evangelism and increase our excitement and joy for the remarkable honor that God has given to us as his messengers. First observation, the Holy Spirit is unmistakably leading this effort. Do you see it in the text? The entire action of this scene is driven by God the Spirit, unmistakably. The story opens in verse 26 when an angel of the Lord tells Philip to go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Gaza is about 50 miles south of Jerusalem. Philip had been in Samaria, which is north of Jerusalem. So Philip had his own arduous journey in order to obey. Then in verse 29, the Holy, Holy Spirit intervenes and gives very specific instruction to Philip. Go over to that chariot. Then, though the text doesn't say it explicitly, we can see that the Holy Spirit has already been at work in this Ethiopian man. Can we not? He has been worshiping in Jerusalem. He is reading the prophet Isaiah. He's reading a text that is actually about Christ. And now he is extremely, unusually eager to invite a stranger up into his chariot to hear the gospel. The Holy Spirit has been at work preparing the way for Philip in this man's life. And then our text ends with the Spirit carrying Philip away to Azotus, miraculously taking him to another town to continue doing the same thing that is witnessing for Christ. From beginning to end, in this text, and more broadly, in the entire book of Acts, the Holy Spirit is the primary actor in God's merciful mission to save those who have rebelled against him. Christian, are you tempted to feel weak and alone in your evangelistic efforts? Do you honestly doubt whether it is even helpful for you to reach out to your lost friends and family. Do your actions over the last year, I want you to think with me about this. This question was very convicting to me this week. Do your actions over the last year indicate an eager confidence that our God is powerful to save or a timid reluctance in the face of a cultural narrative 
that is antagonistic toward the gospel. My friends, God, the Spirit, is carrying the mission forward. He is not daunted by cultural indifference or hostility. This is part of the excitement of this text that we have before us today. When we engage in the task of evangelism, we join in the work of the Spirit of God. Now, second observation. I want you to notice the high priority that the Holy Spirit places on evangelism. Look with me at verse 26. Let's read it together. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And then Luke adds this comment, this is a desert place. We need to remember the context of this story. This command by the Holy Spirit represents rather an abrupt transition in the narrative. Philip has just led a massively successful evangelism campaign in Samaria. Crowds of people, we are told, have been baptized. We don't know how many, perhaps hundreds, perhaps thousands. But in any case, there is a new church to lead in Samaria, a church that might need protection, ongoing protection from the influence of Simon the magician. All the action is in Samaria. There is lots of good work to do in Samaria. And what does the Holy Spirit do? He sends the key leader away, first to share the gospel with one man from Ethiopia, and then to work his way up the coast, preaching the gospel in several towns until he arrives at Caesarea. And friends, we have no evidence that Philip ever went back to Samaria. The next time we see Philip is in chapter 21, and he has apparently gotten married and settled down, and he has four daughters who all have the gift of prophecy. He's living in Caesarea. The point is not that the Holy Spirit doesn't care for the ongoing leadership of the local church. The rest of the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament is going to show us that God takes great care to raise up elders and establish them to lead and care for local churches. However, leading Philip away from Samaria at this moment, just as the church is getting established, I think this demonstrates that God places massive significance on the outward mission of the church. It is a high enough priority, hear this, evangelism is a high enough priority to send your most gifted leaders and teachers. So just to summarize, it is the Holy Spirit himself who is leading and empowering the mission of the church. And the Holy Spirit places an extremely high priority on evangelism. This, in fact, is exactly what Jesus said would happen in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, which is a verse that we have referenced before as a sort of thesis statement for the book of Acts. Uh, it operates almost as a, a sort of table of contents for the events in Acts, and this is what Jesus said. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, 
and you will be my witnesses. The power of God for the mission of God. This is part of what I see in this text, and I hope that it stirs you with excitement and anticipation and confidence for your work as a witness of Christ. I hope that because of this text, in light of this text, that you will walk back into your life at school and at work and with your family, and you will have fresh eyes. You will be looking with fresh anticipation, expecting the Holy Spirit to be at work around you, preparing you and preparing those around you for the message of the gospel. That, isn't that what we see? If you had to boil this story down to its simplest parts, God goes out of his way. He takes extraordinary measures to bring his witness to a person who needs to hear the gospel. And the Holy Spirit, this story is telling you and telling me, the Holy Spirit is no less active and interested in doing that in Philip's life than he is in doing it in ours. Your circumstances and you yourself are being prepared to be a messenger for Christ. May this galvanize us as a church. Church family, when you share your faith, you are not alone. Evangelism is not something that the evangelical church of the 19th and 20th centuries made up. When you step into a situation where you are sharing your faith with someone where you are sharing the good news of Jesus, you are stepping into the powerful stream of the Holy Spirit of God in a work that he has been doing for 2,000 plus years. The Holy Spirit's power is used, is available to us in the mission of God. I hope that's encouraging to you. And that brings us to point number two. Who is the Spirit sending us to? What can we learn from the Ethiopian eunuch? Look with me at verses 27 and 28. And he arose, so Philip arose, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. What an interesting person to meet on a desert road. What are we supposed to learn from this individual? Well, first and most importantly, Luke gives us a surprising amount of information about this man in a relatively short amount of space. And it's meant to create a colorful portrait of a man who could not possibly be more different than Philip. I think commentator Conrad Gimpf captures Luke's point very well when he says this. The ancient kingdom of Ethiopia was probably in the area now called the Sudan. But this is less important to Luke than the impression of foreignness. A more exotic person could hardly be imagined. Not only from one of the most remote regions of the world, he was also an important official there and a eunuch as well. 
why did Luke give us this story? Why did God preserve this story for us in Holy Scripture? And why did Luke tell us about the ethnicity and occupation of this man? My friends, it is to drive forward one of the main themes of the book of Acts, a lesson that we will return to again and again and again in this book, and that is this, the gospel is for everyone. Luke wants his readers to know, and he wants us to know, that God's offer of forgiveness and salvation is not restricted to the Jews. It's not limited by race. It's not limited by nationality, family of origin, socioeconomic status. When Jesus said, make disciples of all nations, what he meant was, make disciples of all nations. Quoting Conrad Gimpf again to drive this point home, the contrast between the two stories about Philip is remarkable. The first takes place in Samaria to the north, this one to the south. The first concerns a mass conversion that comes about because of the scattering. This one, a single conversion because of direct messages from God. The stories are linked, however, not only by the presence of Philip, but also because they concern outsiders to Judaism. My friends, are you thankful this morning that there are no outsiders to the gospel? Are you thankful that God has commanded the gospel invitation to go out to all the earth? Most, if not all of us sitting in the room this morning are just as non-Jewish as that Ethiopian man was. In fact, our cultural context would likely be more radically different and disorienting to Philip than the Ethiopian's background was. But in Christ, God has invited us in, and he has entrusted to us the task of inviting others. One of the key lessons of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch is that we must be extremely careful not to allow prejudice, whether racial or otherwise, to creep into the church and into our hearts and artificially restrict the eager and joyful proclamation of the gospel to all people. The blessed truth is this. The only criteria for entrance into the kingdom of God is repentance for sin and faith in Jesus Christ. There's no racial criteria. There's no socioeconomic criteria. There's no ethnic criteria. Repentance for sin, faith in Jesus. And one of the main reasons Luke included this story was so that we would know that the invitation to repent and believe is to be taken to everyone. The second thing that I think we need to see about this man, the Ethiopian eunuch, is that this is the first story of an individual conversion in the book of Acts. And it's also, uniquely, one of the most detailed descriptions of an individual conversion that we have anywhere in the New Testament. We have everything here, all the way down to the passage of Scripture that Philip used to lead this man to Christ. You see, in Acts, 
Luke is tracking the international growth of Christianity. And so we shouldn't be surprised that he mostly describes the large-scale movements of the church. Crowds in Jerusalem and Samaria. Church councils deciding key theological issues. The church planting movement led by Paul and his team. But here, Luke slows the narrative down to give us the story of two men sitting in a chariot with a Bible talking about Jesus. Part of the meaning of this text is to highlight the importance of personal evangelism. To demonstrate that God is just as powerfully active in personal one-on-one evangelism as he is in the mass conversion of the crowds in Samaria. Listen, not many of us will preach to crowds on the street corners. But every single one of us are called to do what Philip is doing in this text. And just to reiterate, don't forget point number one about the Holy Spirit. Here is the encouragement from Luke. The same spirit that shook the prayer meeting in Acts chapter 4 and gave the people boldness to speak the word of God. The same spirit that just rocked the city of Samaria, healing people and saving crowds of men and women. The same Holy Spirit that spoke to Philip and said, go over to that chariot. The omnipotent Holy Spirit of God is with you, empowering you to do this. That is specifically empowering you to be a messenger, to be like Pheidippides and run with this message to your neighbors and to the nations. And that brings us to point number three, an eager messenger. What kind of messenger are you? Honestly speaking, what kind of messenger are you? Philip gives us an exciting glimpse at what it looks like to be an exuberant, eager, active messenger of Christ. Let's look at verses 29 through 31. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him. Folks, I love Philip. The Holy Spirit's like, there, right there, go to that chariot. And Philip's like, I'm on it, and he's running. He's not walking, he's not just sauntering over, he doesn't stop and say, well, what is this guy going to think about me if I talk to him about Jesus? No, the Holy Spirit's like, that chariot, he's like, got it. He's running to this guy. Let's continue reading. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? That question ought to be convicting to us. How can I understand it, unless someone guides me? I think the whole story hangs on this question and on Philip's response in verse 35. I want you to pause And think about this crucial question for a moment. You see, the the Ethiopian man doesn't know it yet. But what he's really asking is, how can I be saved unless someone explains the gospel to me? And the implied answer is, you can't. 
Someone has got to tell you. We're talking about nothing less than God's chosen means of salvation here. We're in the midst of a story where angels are speaking to people. The Holy Spirit is working powerfully in many ways, but there is a crucial part of the work that God has assigned to us. God has chosen to use us as his messengers. The whole story is built around the fact that God took extraordinary measures to bring a human messenger to this man. You would think, why didn't he just send the angel of the Lord directly to the chariot? It would have saved Philip a long trip. Philip could still be ministering in Samaria. But no, it's because God is insistent that we take the message, that the ones whose lives have been transformed by the merciful and deep love of God would be the ones to tell others. It's difficult to read the Ethiopian's question in verse 31 without thinking of a similar rhetorical question in Romans chapter 10, where Paul writes this, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? This ought to be astounding to us. God the Son came to earth and defeated sin and death. He has made a way for every person who repents of their sins and puts their faith in him to be forgiven and adopted into God's family and granted eternal life. And do you know who gets to announce the victory? You do. Here's another way to put it from 2 Corinthians 5.20. And folks, this verse is... If this verse is not staggering to you, then you're not reading it right. Read it again if, if, if your jaw doesn't fall to the floor. This is one of the most amazing verses in the Bible. Therefore, this is Paul speaking again. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. God is making his appeal to mankind through us. Christ wants to use your mouth to implore men and women, boys and girls, to be reconciled to God through the finished work of Jesus. This is why I titled this message, The Surprising Necessity of Evangelism. Does it not surprise you and humble you to know that you are God's plan to take the offer of salvation to the ends of the earth? Can you imagine a more honorable task? Can you think of anything more important, more necessary, more pressing than this task? So how do we do it? What do we do? Well, Philip is going to show us the way. In verses 32 and 33, Luke quotes the passage from Isaiah 53 that the eunuch was reading. These are two verses from one of the famous servant songs in Isaiah, songs which are prophecies about Jesus. And now look with me at how Philip 
responds in verses 34 and 35. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you? Does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth. And beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Folks, every few years, there's a new evangelism strategy. There's a new secret sauce. If you follow these five steps, then people will come to the Lord. There's usually a lot of excitement around these things, and I don't mean to denigrate strategies for evangelism. We need strategies for evangelism. Strategies are very helpful. But let me be very clear. All you need to do is open your mouth. Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with that scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. I had a a professor at the pastor's college who said, that's a great summary of the entire preaching task. Whatever scripture you have been given that morning, start with that scripture and tell them the good news about Jesus. The reason that's faithful preaching is because the entire Bible points us to Jesus Christ. And listen, that's not all. All of creation is telling the glory of God. And every single human in this room and every single person that you meet in your workplace or at your school is made in the image of God. So my friends, we do not lack for starting points for taking people to the truth of the good news about Jesus Christ. Start with whatever you've been given. Everything in creation points to him. He's the king king of kings and lord of lords. No matter who you're speaking to, they were made in his image. All we must do is open our mouths. The worship team can come on up. Folks, the power of God to save people is in a message. A true story about who Jesus is and what he has done for us. In youth group a couple of weeks ago, we studied Romans 1.16, a very familiar verse where Paul says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And I encourage the youth, and now I want to encourage you to pause and ask yourself, do you really believe that statement? I'm not asking if you merely assent to that statement intellectually. But does your life bear out that you believe that God's power for saving people is brought to bear in people's lives when you share the gospel? The Holy Spirit is bringing people from death to life through the power of a message, and our part is to tell that message. Our part's to open our mouth. We are messengers assigned to carry the news of the most significant victory in human history. Christ has defeated sin and death 
let us run to our neighbors and to the nations. Not walk, not delay. Let us be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and go in confidence and eager anticipation that he is going to meet you and move through the power of the gospel story. The Holy Spirit is not asleep. The question is, are we listening and are we willing to open our mouths? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this stirring example of Philip who eagerly ran. You pointed out to him someone who needed to hear the gospel, and he did not stop. He did not think. He ran to the chariot, and he used your word to reveal the good news of Jesus, and that man was joyfully saved. Lord, I pray that just like Philip, Philip who found himself at Azotus, and continue to preach the gospel that wherever we find ourselves today, you would inspire us and equip us and energize us to be faithful and joyful witnesses of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.